Welcome to episode 62 of Flying Podcast. Today I travel down to Derby Aero Club to meet Martin Jones. Martin is the airfield owner and also a proprietor of Airspeed Aviation. The reason for my visit though was to find out more about his restoration project. His labour of love is a de Havilland Comet. It's not the famous civil airliner of the same name but the 1934 racing comet DH-88 purpose-built for the UK-Australia Robertson Air Race. First off, I wanted to know a little bit about Martin's background. So first of all, Martin, what is your background in aviation and engineering? Well, aviation started by uh, perhaps not very intelligently turning a, a hobby into a business, and I set up my company Airspeed Aviation just over 30 years ago. Arguably, uh, it's never a very intelligent thing to do, but it's been fun thus far. Uh, and I also have a uh, degree in mechanical engineering uh, and a major part of our business here is aircraft engineering. I happen to be a licensed engineer as well. Okay, and you own Derby Airfield? I do indeed, along with my wife, yes. It's very much a family business because my two sons work in the business as does one of my daughter-in-laws, so uh, if you don't like the Joneses, that's a bit of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> right, we sat in your workshop alongside the fuselage of... Uh a de Havilland Comet, not as I first thought when I heard that you were building a de Havilland Comet, I thought you need a big warehouse for that, but this is the original yes, DH-88 that's absolutely Comet. Right. The, the name Comet, of course, uh, was recycled, so we're here with the original DH-88 Comet, uh, the name was subsequently used, as you know, for the first uh, jet airline some years later. So what made you pick in particular? Oh, it was very simple. I didn't pick it. It picked me. Um, it, it really uh, was an introduction through a close friend of mine, Ken Fern, who's well known in restoration circles. Uh, and he uh, uh, approached me some years ago, would I be interested in becoming involved? And to cut a very long story short, well, here it is now. And Ken is still very much involved with the project. Uh, it's a very rare aircraft. Was it only five ever built, is that correct? Five ever built, yes. The, the reason they were built in the first place uh, was that uh, in 1934 uh, uh, there was a, a big celebration in Australia. It was actually to celebrate the centenary of the founding of the state of Victoria, capital Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And the good people down there, in a very far-sighted far way, decided that they wanted to have a big civic celebration and one of the things that uh, was suggested and subsequently happened was the air race that uh, uh, was from the mother country, that's from England of course, to uh, Melbourne in Australia. Uh, and it looked rather as if uh, the Americans, shock horror, were going to win. Uh, and uh, uh, fortunately, de Hav um, Geoffrey de Havilland decided that he couldn't let this happen, this wasn't right, so he said to his uh, uh, colleagues, look, we've got to design something that's capable of winning. So in an incredibly short space of time, a matter of months, they actually designed uh, the comet as we see it here with out-and-out -out, uh, high-speed, if you like, racing aeroplane, very few creature comforts, but very much an epoch-making uh, aeroplane, and I'll describe the technical features later. Um, but they they decided that we build not just one but three aircraft, and indeed three aircraft competed, and they did pretty damn well. Uh, the sister comet actually won the race, and that's the aircraft that's preserved at the Shuttleworth collection in Bedfordshire. 
uh, the, another sister aircraft came fourth, but then set a record for coming back to the UK with movie tone newsreel films. And our aircraft here, which set the record as far as uh, uh, middle of India, really, unfortunately retired with engine problems, and that's quite a story as well. So it's a pretty good story. Uh, so successful were the Comets that uh, the French uh, subsequently tried to, to copy, copy them and got, could get nowhere near the performance. Uh, the subsequent year, 1935, um, two, two others were built, so a total of five. But this is number one. This is the very first to fly, uh, and hence is uh, the f the, um, it's notable because it's the first British aircraft ever to fly with a combination of things we now find common enough, mm -hmm. and that's retractable gear, controllable props, well, nearly, uh, flaps, and what is really a monocoque construction. And this one was flown by somebody famous for that race? Very much so. So it's famous as an aeroplane in itself for the reasons I've just indicated. Even more famous that it was actually owned and flown by Amy Johnson and her husband Jim Mollison, who were married at the time. Uh, and they started as favourite. Uh, there's no two ways about it. And they did actually set the pace as far as, uh, well, it went wrong for them in, in India. Um, largely because Jim Mollison um, had the habit of drinking while he was flying. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> well, um, not alcohol, I think. Uh, you said the aircraft picked you rather than you picking it. Is it because of its historical significance that you decided it needed restoring? Um, the short answer is yes, but I, I wasn't seeking a project at the time. I, I was anxious to help my friend Ken Fern, and one thing led to another. Uh, 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 but w it's fortunate here that, A, we have the space, and in fact the building we're in is largely devoted to the Comet project itself, albeit we do other work as well. Uh, the airfield, of course, uh, the flying background happened to be a licensed engineer and an LAA inspector. So all of the bits, all the ingredients are here. The only thing that's missing is cash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's also worth pointing out that um, there have been a number of record-breaking flights to Australia. It's awfully long way, of course. And the speculation was that the winning aircraft in the McRobertson race of 1934 would make it in perhaps a week, and that was going to be pretty special. The winning comet did it in less than three days. Wow. So you can imagine the world went uh, pretty mad, uh, wild with excitement. The, the PR side was fantastic, because in those days the celebrities of the day were the record-breaking pilots. Today, of course, they're pop stars and, and football players. Mm -hmm. Very different scene then. And certainly the, the green comet that brought the newsreel film back, there were people watching moving images that had been taken in Australia, the celebrations that was going on there, that had been taken only a week previously, and that was really, it's almost equivalent to the m first man uh, moon landing. Yep. Uh, you know, it was that kind of thing. It's hard to imagine going it, back it to is. the lack of communication, so to speak. So oh, indeed, yeah, and I think the key thing about this project uh, 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 is that this was only ever built as a, a peace plane uh, to shrink the world. The idea of the McRobertson race uh, was that they wanted to, in Australia, show that they weren't quite as remote from, you know, the, 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 the sort of the mother country and the Western democracies as, as people might have thought, because, of course, going from England to Australia by sea was many, many weeks. Uh, um, 
And I also wanted to show that Australia was indeed air-minded. This was a good thing to be uh, in those days. Uh, uh, so that was the, the, the background uh, behind this, uh, this, uh, the race. Uh, and the comet was produced to, to specifically enter the race. And of course, the sister aircraft won the race. Uh, and I draw the comparison between that and the uh, warbird scene in the UK. Now, a huge amount of effort, interest, and of course money goes into restoring warplanes. And that's terrific. Wouldn't we all love to fly Spitfire? Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not knocking that one second. I simply say this is a peace plane. It was designed and built to shrink the world, and it did that. Okay. What was its history then after, after the race? Do we know? Yes. Uh, it uh, retired from the race at one of the compulsory checkpoints, a place called Allahabad. Uh, uh, it had burnt, uh, burnt out an engine. And I have to say the other comets had similar problems but were treated a little bit more sympathetically by mm -hmm. their pilots. So they had to retire, and it must have been very difficult for... Amy Johnson and her husband Jim Mollison to simply sit there and watch the rest of the field overtake them. Yeah. Um, I should add that the uh, the uh, the money side was that the uh, the prize was ten thousand uh, pounds, uh, and the aeroplane cost them, and it was a discounted price, five thousand pounds. So it was was a bit of a gamble, bearing in mind, of course, they had to fund all the fuel and all the rest of it. Yep. Uh, so not only were they disappointed in not uh, completing the race, but of course there was a financial big hole developing in their own personal finances. Now both of the pilots had, uh, Amy and her husband, had uh, earned quite well from previous record-breaking flights. Uh, anyway, uh, the aeroplane was repaired in India, uh, and they started, uh, Amy and Jim started flying it back to the UK, but I think the marriage and the failure in the race um, perhaps put a, another spoke in that particular wheel. Uh, so uh, they actually separated in, I think, Syria in the news these days. Jim flew it back then solo and Amy came back by sea. Uh, but the Comets had done so well in the race, there was international uh, attention focused on them. And this very aircraft was sold to the Portuguese government. Uh, and was named after their president, who of course was a dictator, uh, uh, Salazar, uh, and he had various ambitions. One was to break records under the Portuguese ownership, and secondly to pioneer airmail routes across the South Atlantic, because of course the Portuguese Empire in a place like Brazil, a big presence there. Um, it is not quite clear uh, even now how many times it crossed the South Atlantic, we do know that it came back to Hatfield, the centre of the Havilands, in the UK on two occasions pre-war. On, on each occasion, when it went back to Lisbon, it broke its own record. I think the first time, and these were with um, Portuguese pilots, was about six and a half hours. And the second time they went was four and a half hours, which for 1935 mm -hmm. was really incredible. Um, but uh, we, we uh, uh, and of course, what happened in 1939 was war, mm -hmm. and most of Europe went up in flames. So it was assumed that you know little old uh, historic aircraft had sort of you know fallen by the wayside. But this very aircraft was found in Portugal in a very derelict uh, situation in the late 70s. And, uh, it had been stored outside for 40 years. You can imagine it was in a pretty outside. bad state. Wow. Yeah, brought back 
to the UK uh, by a restorer, a guy called um, Jim Pierce, uh, uh, and he started restoration, but um, uh, unfortunately had a workshop fire that destroyed the wing completely, so nothing survived of the wing. Uh, it then passed the remains, he thought, um, you know, uh, more than I can handle now, so he sold it on. It passed through various hands, uh, and each time I think people thought, well, simply owning the aircraft would suck in funds. Well, mm-hmm. um, the reality is not quite that. Uh, and it eventually ended up with my good friend Ken Fern, who I mentioned before, and he uh, realised the significance of the aeroplane and sold everything he possibly could to raise the money. Uh, fortunately included the drawings uh, and that's our strength that uh, we're always asked well how do you know what to do and the answer is we do have the drawings some gaps but nevertheless that's that's what we do have uh, and as I've indicated before it ended up here and Ken is still very much involved with it. When does the restoration become a replica? Ah interesting uh, if it's a military aircraft um, they were produced with uh, data tags, you know, metal plates, and, you know, let's be right, you can rebuild a Spitfire around a data plate. Uh, It'll cost you a lot of money, of course, but that is a restoration as opposed to replica. Civil aircraft uh, then and now uh, don't quite have the same thing. Uh, Sufficient to say that we have um, had dealings with the Civil Aviation Authority and they accept that this is uh, the, uh, the, the original, albeit we've had to take it down several steps to build it up again and we do have the document to title so so this is actual actually golf alpha charlie sierra papa uh, originally known as black magic okay so it is potentially a full-time occupation doing something like this isn't it even though even though de Havilland did it in a couple of months <laughs> it's going to take you uh, years. absolutely right um, um, and of course de Havilland had uh, quite large resources and yeah. very skilled people we have those skilled people largely retirees who are marvelous people who, and it's they're providing their labor on a voluntary basis uh, um, so we, 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 the progress we've made thus far is entirely in the hands of volunteers. Uh, we have to source out certain items, uh, and if you look up on the notice board up there, there's a, there's a number of, and indeed on our website, a number of sponsors have helped us either with outright gifts of, uh, of material uh, or alternatively substantial discounts on the services they actually provide. And I should add that uh, my own company, which is Airspeed Aviation, you know, we provide on a month-to-month basis some of the consumables that are needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are not yet uh, uh, able to um, uh, resource uh, full anybody working full-time on it. That is actually our next challenge. That's where we want to be very shortly, to move it on. It's happening now. There's no particular problem, but we'd like to move it a bit faster. Have you any idea how long it's going to take from beginning to end in year terms? or Well, I'd like to think, and it's becoming a tall order, that we could fly it in 2014, Mm -hmm. that is now next year. Uh, And the reason for that is the 80th anniversary of the 1934 race, simply that. Uh, It's possible, but it depends how successful we are with fundraising. I have to say, we're probably better at engineering and construction than we are at fundraising. And the stage that you are at now, where are we? I can right. see the fuselage. Well, the fuselage is, is structurally pretty much done. Remember that um, it was the large, largest bit that survived, uh, uh, but we had to take it down several stages. We've had to scrap a lot of it because 40 years in, in, in the outside world is not good for airworthiness. 
Uh, every uh, metal fitting that you see is new, but the fuselage is structurally um, pretty much done. Uh, we're working on uh, cockpit controls, flying controls, canopy, and that's all well in hand. We're also well in hand with things like uh, uh, undercarriage mounts, uh, uh, indeed major parts of the undercarriages themselves, engine mounts, uh, we we have we also have engines, um, which is a big step forward, and we do have uh, the capability in house. We do engine overhaul anyway as part of our business, mm -hmm. so that's all quite straightforward. We have propellers. We've made the tailplane, the elevators, and the fin. We're about to start on the rudder, and we have just started um, manufacturing wing spars. In fact, up there on the wall is the first of the spars. Okay. And as you can see, it's big. <laughs> mm. In terms of instrumentation, what are you going to do? We're going to cheat because the flight instruments we'll have will be state-of-the-art uh, glass cockpit, uh, modern technology, simply because it's very cost-effective and very light in weight. Uh, I think when we park the aircraft for display, in the summer sun we'll have some brass round instruments that will simply be there for show mm -hmm. but we'll actually fly it with much more modern kit uh, not just uh, cost and, and, and weight but also the facility that it provides us and de Havilland actually produced some race specific engines didn't he for the for the aircraft they did indeed uh, it, they were called the gypsy 6r r for racing yeah. Uh, um, the Gypsy 6 itself was new in uh, 1934, but used in, in other aircraft, Rapides and a few other bits and pieces. Uh, and, and Gypsy 6s did actually feature in other aircraft in the race itself, and I'll come back to that point. The R was an attempt to get a little bit more horsepower, high compression pistons, slightly reduced uh, engine height uh, to make it fit into a very tightly cowled, uh, uh, engine nacelle uh, uh, and you're absolutely right um, they are extremely rare because I think they only ever made eight and I've never quite worked out how eight fits into five aircraft but uh, <laughs> uh, later on the gypsies the, 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 the modifications that they induced for the R actually became production standards subsequently as engines were developed uh, uh, and I know that the um, the Shuttleworth Comet is flying on Gypsy Queen 2s, as is a full-size replica in America. Some years ago in America, they, they actually built a, a full-size replica that's been flying for many years. I've actually had the privilege of flying in that, which was a big, uh, big high point in my life, I have yeah. to say. And that was at Oshkosh a few years back. So what engines does this have? What have you got lined up? We've got slightly later Queen uh, Queen engines. They're actually Queen 30s, and that allows us to use a much more up-to-date propeller, uh, which uh, does actually feather, because I really don't fancy flying a twin for which you can't feather the propellers. Because yep. originally, for the race, uh, although I indicated they had controllable propellers, they were just two-speed. You took off in fine and at a given airspeed they would suddenly switch automatically to course but once they were in course you couldn't reset them until you were back on the ground right. and that was an acceptable uh, gamble if you wish for the, the frenetic rush to get the aircraft in a race worthy condition. You know you say you, you restore or 
you can refurbish engines here. What are the sort of challenges with uh, such an old engine? Do you have to manufacture parts, or are they available? We believe they're largely available. Um, the engines that we've chosen, uh, uh, we believe the bits will be fairly straightforward, but they are classic British engines, and interestingly, uh, the overhaul manuals allow you, subject to condition, to reuse a lot of parts. American engines that are current in Cessnas and Pipers and things like that, uh, the manufacturers lay down a mandatory list of replacement parts. So when you overhaul an engine, irrespective of the condition of certain key parts, you have to throw them away. That's not the case with, uh, with some of these uh, British engines, okay. I'm pleased to say. Uh, you've mentioned Ken Fern and you have a team of volunteers. Who else is sort of helping you out with the restoration? Well, I, I have a list of volunteers here, and I'd just like to read them out, but I do apologise in advance because there's some chance that, that we've missed somebody off the bottom line, and I do apologise. Right, uh, my son David Jones, Ian Robinson, David Robinson, my wife Margaret, Ken we've already mentioned, Michael Arimore, Richard Cook, George Armstrong, Brian Woodward, Steve Green, Steve Goodall, Mike Stevenson, Brian Waters, Paul Newman, Colin Cheese uh, and Stuart Jackson together with uh, Dr Richard Mole plus various members of staff here who help out. I'm sorry if it's a long list but I feel I have to do justice to these wonderful people who helped us so much. Uh, have there been any particular issues that have held you up and uh, sort of jeopardised the project? I wouldn't say jeopardise the project, because we're going to do it anyway. Uh, the thing that's caused us some headaches, uh, availability of good spruce. The structure is Sitka spruce, uh, and getting good quality stuff now, and this is one of the, the benefits that they had in the 30s when they were built, was everybody was building wooden aeroplanes, so yep. there was a plentiful supply of good quality stuff. I'm pleased to say now we've identified an importer. He's actually in the... Uh, in the boat business who's bringing in very good stuff and we've developed a relationship with that company uh, and we're doing mechanical testing uh, that's needed to uh, accredit the stuff as proper aircraft timber. Uh, so that particular problem is, uh, is now resolved. We still need a lot more wood but obviously we're buying it as we need it. Uh, uh, the other challenge I think is space. Um, you know, the, the building that we're in is a big step forward for us because this is more than a, 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 a you know a backstreet garage job. Uh, we're in quite a large workshop here, yep. uh, and we we have accumulated most of the uh, uh, equipment that we need. We're actually short of nothing at the moment. And you mentioned you are uh, an LAA inspector. Yes. So you have involvement of the LAA in, in yourself? Uh, <laughs> with it. other projects, the LAA have been invited to. Uh, uh, participate in this particular project and the, they in principle are going to go along with it however uh, because this aircraft originally had a C of A uh, we have to be uh, in we're, we're in the hands at the moment of the CAA but I expect and perhaps hope that we will eventually go to the LAA. It's a very big step for them, I have to say. Is it really? Well, uh, first started a twin. Secondly, it's a very big twin, uh, uh, and, it, and it's pretty powerful. Yeah. Um, so, but having said that, the LAA, as you know, uh, are taking uh, under their wing lots of what I'd call legacy aeroplanes, um, you know, things like, well, lots of the moths, but more recently 
uh, chipmunks and indeed bulldogs. So uh, uh, their sort of uh, sphere of interest is, is growing all the time. Okay. So come the glorious day in 2014, as you've promised, you'll be rolling this out into a nice sunny afternoon and uh, at your airfield. What's the sequence then? Who gets to... <laughs> well, that's very easy, because uh, I'm going to be in it. Uh, I don't have a, uh, a, a twin rating yet, but uh, I've been indebted to my elder son, Paul, who's our chief instructor, who now, as a young man of just low 30s, has nearly 12,000 hours of instructional time, which we think is almost unique in the UK, and he has done very many first flights of LAA-type aircraft, uh, most of the RVs and very strange things like, um, uh, well, VP-1s right through the range, uh, so he's a very experienced pilot. Uh, he's even flown my, my own home-built, which is a Rollison Beta, uh, which is still on its test program, I might add, uh, and thus far I've been very pleased that he's been flying in it, not me, because it's a little bit hot. So he'll be taking it upon its first flight? Oh, indeed, yes. And it is a two-seater then, I it presume, is a, two a tandem? Seat. It is, yes, yes. But, be, uh, but as you'll see shortly, there's not much room in it, but yes, it's a tandem. After chatting about the background uh, to the Comet Restoration Project, Martin then took me for a quick walk around the aircraft in one of the workshops on the airfield. Okay, we're walking around the, uh, the aircraft now. Start with the fuselage. Sound effects. <laughs> Just tell me what material we're made right, of. Here. Well, the, the basic structure is uh, Sitka spruce, is then covered with uh, uh, birch plywood. Um, the uh, uh, the big thing that you see in f is, is the cavernous front end of the fuselage, which is effectively two very large fuel tanks. What you have to realise is the comet, uh, or this comet, has a range of uh, 3,000 nautical miles which uh, means a lot of fuel, uh, but there aren't many aircraft, even now, that can claim that without uh, the need for refuelling. did actually have a third tank uh, in the rear fuselage, but that was more about um, balancing for trim. Right, the cockpit, uh, two-seat, uh, one behind the other, ta classic tandem, full dual controls, um, but really only one set of instruments uh, in the front cockpit. Uh, the idea was that the pilots would share the flying while they were airborne, and don't forget the individual legs were anything up to 12 hours. Uh, the idea was that one pilot would try and sleep uh, while the other actually flew the aircraft. They didn't change seats while they were airborne, so the person in the back had to sort of look over the shoulder. I think they had um, uh, perhaps a repeat ASI and maybe an altimeter, but that's pretty much all. Um, it's interesting to note that the aircraft that won, the pilots were Scott and Black, uh, very experienced record-breaking pilots, and they decided that when they set off they would do, as it were, shifts of two hours each. By the time they got to the last legs in Australia, they were so exhausted um, they could each manage ten minutes, so it gives you some idea. Jeez. And when they arrived, and of course they did it in this incredible record-breaking time of less than three days, uh, they more or less had to be helped out of the aircraft. And uh, the interviews they did, the classic bits of movie tone um, footage, really worth looking at, fantastic. 
navigation in those days was purely by uh, map and compass and stopwatch uh, uh, pre no, non-radio no electronic aids at all uh, uh, and indeed all of the instrumentation would be you know pressure and uh, these days we're used to um, all sorts of electronic gizmos in aircraft for instrumentation and navigation none of those things at all and when you think too that de Havilland had very little time to develop these aircraft they were optimised to fly at 10,000 feet which was quite high uh, and the mixture setting was really as crude as a pencil line on the mixture quadrant um, there was nothing more scientific than that and they flew at night as well? Uh, indeed, indeed, yes wow. yeah. by uh, the stars I presume uh, uh, yes um, the, um, the bits and pieces you see lying around here the fin uh, the fin has been fitted, uh, as has the tailplane. The tailplane's over there on the bench. Uh, the tailplane mounts are in, uh, albeit temporarily removed again because we're working on uh, other aspects of the fuselage. The elevators uh, made uh, down on the bench over there, uh, and we're about to start making the fin, as I indicated earlier. And the Undercarriage, is that the undercarriage underneath? The, the undercarriage mounts are there. Uh, the undercarriage uh, assemblies themselves are uh, currently being manufactured. That's off-site. Uh, we're using a company in Northampton called uh, N&B Engineering who've been extremely helpful to us. Uh, 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 but the, the metalwork, it's all, all new because clearly we want to fly the aircraft, so no risk with airworthiness at all. Uh, and tell me about the wings. They're, they're made with, as you say, is it Sitka spruce spars? Right, uh, that's absolutely right. Uh, uh, the wingspan of the aircraft is actually 42 feet, so each wing, according to my maths, is 21 feet long. Uh, that means the spars, these are the, you know, the span-wise members, are pretty large. In fact, up on the wall, there's the first of them that we, we've made from scratch. Uh, as I indicated, the originals were destroyed in a workshop fire, albeit that had been in pretty bad condition. Uh, and it's relatively conventional by, uh, by wooden aircraft standards. Uh, in fact, they're box bars, but of course they are pretty large, so we're getting through lots of spruce. Uh, and the sort of challenges that we've got, and you may find it slightly strange, but you know how straight is straight and how flat is flat, mm -hmm. because clearly when you're laminating spars, um, the uh, the end product is only as good as the manufacturing facility. So you have to be very careful. And certainly when you're gluing things up, you're lathering on glue in every direction, clamping it up as rapidly as you can. Uh, um, you need a lot of clamps and that adds a lot of weight so unless you're very careful the clamps that you're using for while the glue dries can actually distort the structures that you're trying to make so we, we've had to do a, a, a lot of learning uh, the the whole thing then is is uh, assembled or will be assembled with the ribs and, and in fact there's a pile of ribs on the racking over there uh, relatively straightforward um, so the thing ends up looking like a, a ladder and for torsional stiffness what was new on the uh, comets was a diagonal planking between the spars and this is quite large bits of spruce that are laid in uh, a diagonal sense one layer opposing the other and then finally shaped to, to make a very stiff wing 
uh, and then the whole thing is covered with, with plywood. The controls, the actual elevator, sorry, the, um, the ailerons and flaps are, are fabric covered, will be fabric covered in a fairly conventional way. I think the worst thing from our perspective is that this is a very large aeroplane, mm -hmm. the bits are big. There's no tanks in the wing? None at all, no. Uh, um, the, uh, all the fuel is in uh, three fuselage tanks. Uh, and when it's finished, roughly the speed of the flight? Uh, 200 knots uh, uh, at um, uh, full uh, 3,000 miles, which is, is pretty damn good. It's competitive even now, yeah. uh, and uh, it, it, it's capable of breaking lots of records even now, I would say. And with today's sort of uh, knowledge of uh, aerodynamics, was de Havilland's wing a pretty aerodynamic design? Uh, very much so. It was very highly tapered, very ahead of its time. Uh, don't forget that in 1934, lots of uh, uh, commercial aircraft, for example, biplanes, which of course are f effectively externally uh, braced, you know, rigging-wise all over the place, uh, the Comet's incredibly uh, low-drag design, uh, very advanced uh, from a streamlining point of view, uh, but optimised very much for uh, uh, you know high-speed cruising, and of course very successful at that. Bit of a handful at low-speed handling. They did have flaps, uh, uh, as I indicated earlier, so they could be slowed up for landing. But they did have a tendency to drop a wing uh, quite badly. And there's a classic piece of film of the Green Comet when it was arriving at the start point from the manufacturer. The start point was Mildenhall, and you can see quite clearly he's got it l low and slow, and finally one wing goes down and does not bounce the undercarriage in a very severe way. I think they actually damaged it, and there was then fantastic uh, effort to get it airworthy for the race, which okay. of course they did. Uh, if somebody wants to support the project or come down and have a look at what you're doing, what's the Well, they're very welcome to uh, uh, come along. We do have a website, and it's very simply cometracer.co.uk. There is a wah, wah, wah in front of it, as you might expect. Uh, uh, and from there you can pick up, um, obviously, uh, contact with, with ourselves, plus um, uh, a photo streams on Flickr. Uh, so th there are a lot of photographs actually out on the web. Great stuff. And can people come down to have a look at your project? They can. Um, we prefer if they give us uh, an email or a, a phone call first so that we've got someone around. We can't undertake necessarily to entertain people as we might like, just capriciously. Yep. But we do try and make people welcome. Great stuff, as you have made me. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Martin Jones of the Comet Racer Project. Well, what a fascinating aircraft and an equally fascinating history. With the recent restoration of that mosquito in New Zealand, uh, it's interesting to see the similarities in this uh, earlier de Havilland model. If you'd like to follow the restoration's progress, you can find details online. The link that Martin mentioned to the Comet Racer website can be found on the Flying Podcast website. That's flyingpodcast.co.uk. Don't forget to drop me an email if you'd like to uh, suggest a subject for the podcast or even if you'd like to take part. The email address, as usual, is steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. Okay, that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. I'll speak to you all again soon.